Hello and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I'm Sean, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Eric. What's up, guys? In this episode, we're going to be talking about a brutally violent crime mystery that involves the slaying of an entire family. It is probably one of the most widely known family killings in American history, and remains a case that many people are still invested and interested in to this day. For this discussion, we will be talking about the infamous Velisca Axe Murders. And this crime took place in Iowa in the summer of 1912 and sparked nationwide attention for not only the savage attacks, but also for the fact that no one was sure of who committed this horrific atrocity. And in this episode, we'll be going over the background of the murders and all the known theories and suspects behind who could have done such a thing. And we would like to thank our listeners, Connor and John, for both suggesting this true crime mystery to us. Also, though most likely obvious, this episode contains content that is quite disturbing in nature. So, a uh, fair warning for those who are uncomfortable with violent crimes. This definitely meets those criteria. Oh, yeah. And before we get started, a quick announcement. We recently put up a poll on our Patreon page, so all those supporting Strange Matters can go there and help vote on what topics and categories you would like to hear from us and what we should work on next. So right now, two of the front runners are unexplained cases and disturbing murders. So this case definitely fits both of those. And for any patrons who haven't had the chance yet, feel free to go vote on the poll. Also, for any other listeners out there who enjoy our podcast and would like to get involved with helping support the show, as well as gaining access to monthly bonus episodes, please visit our page at patreon.com slash strangematters. And for this episode, we would especially like to thank our newest patrons of the show, Sandra and Belkisa. Yeah, thanks a lot for helping the show. All right, so we'll get started with a little bit of background. Uh, Villisca is a small town in Montgomery County, which is located in southwestern Iowa. In the most recent census, there is just over a thousand people living there, so even less so a century ago. In such a small town, it is likely that most residents were familiar with each other somewhat and were not used to any serious crime offenses, probably just a lot of petty crimes, but nothing too bad. Not many today would be aware of this small little city at all if it wasn't for the brutal events that took place in the summer of 1912, which we're going to be talking about in this episode. This case revolves around the Moore family, which consists of Josiah and his wife Sarah, along with their four children Herman, Mary, Arthur, and Paul. The children's ages ranged from 5 to 11 years old. The Moore family were a pretty wealthy family and were generally well-known and liked in the community. It is noted that most people around there had favorable opinions of the Moors, and there were no known enemies or belligerents, really, who had wanted to harm the family. And this is what makes the unfortunate fate of the Moors even more puzzling and disturbing. On June 10th, 1912, the Moore family was participating in a Children's Day event that was at their local church that Sarah, the mother of the family, had put together. Now, coming along with them were two children who were friends of the family, Lena and May Stillinger. 
who were 12 and 8 years old, respectively. Later that night, after the event had ended and they finished cleaning up, the Moores and the two Stillinger girls walked from the church back to the family's house, arriving around 10 p.m. Little did anyone know at the church that this would be the last time that anyone would ever see the family alive. So early the very next morning is when people began to notice that something wasn't quite right about the Moore's house. And one of the Moore's neighbors named Mary noticed that no one had come out of the house and there was no sounds or signs of activity coming from the home. And now this was odd to her as she was used to seeing the children out early doing their daily chores. Mary walked over and knocked on the door several times, but strangely enough, there was no answer and no sounds that anyone was even home. She tried the doorknob, but found it locked from the inside. At this point, Mary went out back and let the chickens out to feed, as was part of the morning ritual of the family. Returning home, the worried neighbor called Josiah Moore's brother, who's named Ross. So when Ross Moore arrived at his brother's house, he too noticed it a bit strange that no one was about. The windows looked like they were all completely covered by drapes or blocked by some type of fabric, so it was obstructing their view from the outside. Growing worried, he knocked loudly on the door also and began shouting inside for his brother Josiah. Ross and Mary stood out waiting, but there were still no sounds and no signs that anyone was coming to unlock the door. Fortunately, Ross did have a copy of the house key, so he was able to unlock the door and let himself inside. And telling Mary to stay outside at the door entrance, Ross walked slowly into the quiet house. And the first room that he came upon was the guest room, with its door shut. And though he must have been feeling confused and maybe a bit worried, Ross most likely could never prepare himself for the nightmare he was about to walk into. So opening the door to the guest room and taking a step inside, Ross Moore could see clearly the two butchered bodies of two young girls laying across the spare bed and they were the children's friends, Lena and May Sillinger. The man immediately yelled in the direction of Mary waiting outside and told her to call the local law enforcement officer immediately. So shortly after receiving the call, Hank Horton, the small town's primary officer, arrived at the house. Mary and Ross were waiting. Horton ventured into the house and conducted a thorough search. By looking from room to room, the police officer would find one body after another. At the end of his search, he would conclude that every member of the Moore family, plus the Stillinger girls, eight people in total, had all been bludgeoned to death in their sleep. It was found that all the windows and mirrors in the house were covered with clothes or blankets from the home. Returning to the guest room, Officer Horton would find the murder weapon, which was a large, bloodied axe. It would seem that the two Stillinger girls in the bottom level of the house would be the last victims of the unknown assailant. Strangely, it was quickly realized that the axe used to murder the two parents and six children actually belonged to Josiah Moore. Yeah, there are a few takeaways a person can make from the fact that the axe did belong to Josiah. One is that the killer most likely did not bring his own weapons to the house but instead just picked up whatever he could find at the scene, so I guess he just saw the axe lying around. Um, this could suggest that the killer did not 
really planned this violent act out too well. It is hard for me to believe that this was a real premeditated crime if the culprit didn't even bring a weapon. Now, this could suggest that this was a crime of opportunity. Maybe someone just snapped mentally and spontaneously decided that this one particular house that he came across would be his target and everyone inside would be his eventual victims. I know what you're saying, but from my perspective, looking at this scene from an outside perspective, I could entertain the argument that the murderer did not want to use a weapon that could somehow be linked to him, whether it be by DNA, which was kind of a new concept at this time, or by fingerprints, or even something like a recent purchase transaction, or some other sort of like forensic evidence. Um, So that was my initial thought. But then keep in mind, this is the early 1900s, around the time of World War One, and in a very small town. So it's not likely that law enforcement had at their fingertips the most cutting-edge, state-of-the-art investigatory methods and techniques. And, for example, at that time, fingerprinting was an extremely new concept, and there likely was not a database of criminal fingerprints. um, Established yet. Established yet. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, I did read that they did dust for prints and didn't really find anything so this would suggest that the killer probably wore gloves of some kind now whether he did that just to for grip or to protect himself or because he knew he was aware of dna testing which would probably suggest that he was a criminal you know before in his life um which we'll get into later on but right as you say there wasn't really any Again, forensic evidence was very basic at this time, but what little they could look for, they didn't find anything. But it is pretty generally accepted that most people believe that there's little doubt if this crime had been committed today, it would have been solved in a matter of hours based on the amount of forensic evidence that was likely left over at the scene. Yeah, I hear that. I agree. So what's interesting and really frustrating to me is that once the bodies were initially discovered, the word of the murders spread like wildfire throughout the small town. And townspeople all basically just set upon the crime scene, and law enforcement was quickly overwhelmed and lost control of the situation. And I read that as many as 100 curious onlookers basically just kind of marched through the house, gaping at the disturbing display. And this is frustrating to me, given that the people who serve to benefit the most from the conviction of the killer are the ones who made that process the most difficult. And I can't imagine being an investigator and witnessing these people just kind of stupidly trudging through the house. And then not to mention, if it was me, I wouldn't want there to be the slightest trace of evidence that I had even ever set foot on the premises for fear of being implicated in the murders myself, whether it be, again, for a footprint or a fingerprint or anything like that. That's true. I didn't really think about that. And it's actually interesting, uh, none other than a pharmacist. Anybody who listens to our podcast knows that I'm a pharmacist. Um, And at this time, they were called druggists back in the early 1900s. He actually came up with the idea of going into the house to take pictures. However, he was thrown out by law enforcement, which in hindsight um, could have been a a very important piece of evidence. Yeah. I mean, who knows 
if there was some type of evidence left behind that, as you said, dozens of people kind of walk through, try to get their own look at the bodies. They might have even taken something or maybe something that the police found actually belongs to one of these people instead of the killer. So it really just messed up the whole thing. Now, back to the type of criminal who could have done this. If we're talking in terms of serial offenders, this killer would most likely fall into the disorganized category. Now, these types of criminals are known for being of generally lower intelligence, but are notorious for being very violent, brutal, and sadistic, preferring to use overkill when attacking their victims. They normally engage in a blitz-style attack, killing everyone at one site, usually leaving their bodies of their victims more or less intact, so they're not dissecting or dismembering the bodies of the people they killed. Now, due to the frenzied and brutal nature of their attack, disorganized killers usually leave behind a chaotic crime scene, but fortunately, along with that, they also have a higher chance of leaving behind physical evidence over the more careful and plotting comrades in murder. Unfortunately, as we discussed, the if it was today, they would be able to spot a lot more physical and forensic evidence, but unfortunately, they just didn't have the ability. The techniques. You're the right. expertise. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to note that disorganized killers do not typically venture far from their homes when they are overcome with the urge for violence. Now, this could suggest that whoever committed this crime was a resident of Villisca as well, perhaps even living in the same neighborhood as the Moors. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So since we're speaking hypothetically, an example of a disorganized serial killer would be a guy by the name of Otis Toole, who died in 1996. So again, with the disorganized serial killers, this individual had a low IQ of 75. He was a known arsonist. He was sexually aroused by fire, sexually incompetent, and his victims were frequently chosen at random. So in contrast to Otis Toole, uh, an organized serial killer would be, for example, John Wayne Gacy, who I'm sure most of you all have heard of. He had a very high IQ, had his own business and a successful occupation, and was well-liked by his community, and also had a very successful marriage. So this already is generally not really sounding like the type of situation we have going on in the Villisca Axe murders. Right. So it does kind of seem like just a disorganized, chaotic crime scene. Um, now, one of the one of the most disturbing finds of the police investigation, it was discovered while searching the attic that two recently smoked spent cigarettes were found on the floor. So this suggested to the police that the killer must have been at the house for at least some time before he actually started his attack. You know, rather than somehow breaking in, as was originally suspected. The police figured that leading up to the murders, one way or another, the killer found himself up in the attic. Whether he was hiding there all along, according to plan, or was forced to hide there at the return of the Moore family from their church event, that part's unknown. Once up there, the killer must have lingered as the family split off into their own bedrooms and fell asleep, smoking two cigarettes while he waited for his time to strike. Yeah, this is a pretty terrifying concept to me. I don't know if anybody listening has ever been in a house um, that wasn't theirs or been in a house that they weren't supposed to be in, but I kind of picture the killer inside the house, you know, kind of wandering around, exploring his 
you know, potential future crime scene and suddenly hears a jiggle at the front door and rushes up into the attic to hide. Meanwhile, the Moore family comes home and goes about their daily business completely unaware that there's a murderer lurking in the rafters of their very home. I think that's a fear everyone has had at least once in their life. The thought like, you know, you come home and you might hear something in the house. You're like, oh, God, am I about to be murdered or is someone someone here? And just to think that this has happened in real life, that whole families or people have come back to their home. They've spent hours there. They go to bed and they realize that someone's been there waiting the entire time just for their moment of opportunity. Right. I. It's funny you mentioned that, Sean, because I actually... Um, my wife and I just recently bought a house and I, for several weeks was convinced that there was somebody living in our upper attic. So what I did was before we went out of town, I put a piece of tape on the door to see if I would come home after several days and the tape would be broken. Um, but despite my worst fears, there's no hobo living in our house apparently. Anyways... Um. So back to the case, piecing together the physical evidence that they could find, the police put together the sequence of what went down that night, at least according to what they think. So they believe that the killer, after sneaking down from his spot in the attic, made his way to the master bedroom first. Josiah and Sarah Moore lay sleeping in their bed, and it was here that the assailant started his rampage. The unknown killer first attacked Josiah, bringing down the blade of the axe down multiple times directly onto his face. The attack was so gruesome that by the end, Josiah's face was almost unrecognizable. His eyes even became detached and lost as a result of the carnage. Sarah, who was lying next to him, was killed next, hit on the head with the blunt side of the axe with enough force to kill her. It is interesting to note that and the entire slaughter of the Moore family, the axe blade was only used against the father, Josiah, while the rest of the family were killed in a slightly less violent manner by being bludgeoned by the reverse side of the tool. So this sort of scenario seems like it might indicate a couple of different things to me. So one potential scenario is the murderer had a personal vendetta against Josiah and wanted to disfigure him almost, again, to the state of being unrecognizable just because it was personal between the killer and Josiah. Um, the other scenario is that the murderer's intent was to produce a gruesome scene, but after his initial experience, he was kind of bothered by the violence and resorted to potentially a less morbid method. I don't know if that even makes I, sense. I mean, I could kind of see that, but then I think the more we discuss about it, I think I'll lean away from the second option. Um, the first one I thought about too, that Josiah was the first victim, you know, he was killed with the blade. It was a lot more bloodier. It could be a personal attack, but honestly, I mean, if you go get a bit morbid about it, if you want to destroy Josiah, you can go kill every single member of his family while he lays asleep and he wakes up and discovers that I can't imagine a worse possible thing imaginable than waking up and finding your entire family's been murdered in your house while you just slept. Right. Um, The other thing to consider is that there's even the possibility from the murderer's perspective that with the sharpened of the axe, 
that's going to cause certain immediate death. But if you picture a head, a skull, you know, sitting on a somewhat cushioned bed and then hitting them with the blunt end of the axe, there's always the potential that that could not instantly kill them. Right. Especially because it's at night too. Right. So exactly. I'm sure he can kind of get a somewhat good view, but you're right. I mean, if he doesn't get, if he doesn't bring the axe directly down, it's probably going to slide off just because our head is rounded. Right. Um, and it, it, it just wouldn't be a clean penetrating blow. Yeah. So it's almost to me seems like, and I think we might get into this a little bit later, but it almost seems to me like he was taking out the greatest threat first yeah. with the most certainty. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. So after dispatching the parents, the killer silently went from bedroom to bedroom. Just as with the mother of the family, Sarah, he would murder the children by striking them on the head with the blunt end of the axe. It would appear that he killed from oldest to youngest. Kind of like what we were just saying, this could show that his attack was somewhat planned out to go basically from eliminating the strongest threat down to the youngest who didn't really pose much of a threat at all. Or it could just be the layout of the house uh, that the assailant killed in that manner. It could be just the oldest bedrooms were closer to the parents. It's kind of unknown on that uh, <clears throat> on that end. So he just went to the nearest bedroom. It could be, yeah. So once the entire Moore family was dead, the killer would again return to the master bedroom with Josiah and Sarah inside. Both Josiah and Sarah would receive multiple more blows to the head from that axe, even after their death. So going back to what we were just talking about a moment ago, to me this could suggest that this entire murder spree may be a personal attack of some kind against the parents, um, especially Josiah in particular, as he did receive by far the most damage. Or on the flip side, you could say that the assailant still went into vent the violence and murderous rage he had and would rather do it to the adults than the children. Uh, during his second frenzy in the master bedroom, he would knock over a shoe that was lying next to the bed that had become filled with blood from the initial assault on Josiah. Now, Once finished, the killer left the bedroom and walked downstairs, where he would eventually find his way into the guest room. It is unknown whether he knew that the family had guests over. It could be that he was familiar with the Moors in their house beforehand and believed he was done with his spree once all of the family members were deceased. Or if he was observing the home's occupant somehow or her talking below, he could have figured out before he left the attic that there was two additional children inside the house that night. In any case, for his last act of violence, the assailant entered the guest room and murdered young May Sillinger with the axe. What happened next was one of the oddities of this murder crime, as Linda Sillinger appeared to have awoken during the attack on her sister. Now, this would make her the only person in the house that night who was actually awake and aware of what was going on. Seemingly, every other victim was asleep during the killing blow. Lena was found lying sideways across the bed, suggesting she either moved or tried to dodge the oncoming blows. And she also had defensive marks on one of her arms, which most likely suggests that she was raising her arms to try to cover her head during the first couple strikes. Unfortunately, the 12-year-old was not able to protect herself or escape, and she too was bludgeoned to death just like her sister beside her. When her body was eventually discovered by the police, her nightgown was seen to be pushed up around her waist, and she was wearing no underwear on underneath. Now, this could suggest that the killer may have attempted to actually sexually abuse the young girl. 
Now, there was an additional piece of evidence that turned up that isn't commonly reported. As many people believe that law enforcement conducted a subpar investigation of the murders. It was actually a set of footprints that were discovered on the front porch of the residence. So these footprints indicated that the murderer, upon his departure, had jumped over the railing and also that whoever the murderer was was wearing moccasins. And those few who know about the footprints, so mostly people who are locals in the Velisca area, believe that a disgruntled former acquaintance of the Moore family had actually sent an Indian to commit the murders. However, this is mostly just f- more folklore than actual theory and generates from a lot of the um, rumors that were circulating around the area at the time. I mean, I could see the moccasins or something similar. That would make more sense when you're trying to sneak around the house than, you know, if he was wearing work boots or even sneakers, something really soft and cushiony, probably help him sneak around more. So after the police had searched the house and the surroundings, they found themselves basically overwhelmed in a situation that none of the residents of Villisca could imagine being in. This small city, which really had no serious criminal problems beforehand, suddenly found themselves to be the center of one of the most brutal and sadistic acts of murder in the entire country at the time. Law enforcement promptly set out trying to find out who was behind this heinous crime and started to look into any possible suspects who they believe could have been behind the family slaying. It's also interesting to note how the residents of Villisca reacted to these murders. Now, given this was a small town and the, the people were completely, you know, sheltered from this sort of vicious um, crime, but that being said, the people basically just clammed up. So they like reinforced the lock, the locks on their doors. They open carried weapons all over the place. They slept together as families in beds, just basically out of sheer terror. And not only that, but given the small size of the town, people began accusing other people of the crimes. And again, this is how a lot of those rumors started to spread quickly, which probably really didn't help the investigation at all. And it's actually something that to this day, people remain divided over, you know, who they believe is actually responsible for the crime. It's kind of like a family feud in the Velisca area. Yeah, I'm sure they, with a community that small, everyone, you know, you know, everyone knows everyone. It could be that a few people know some guy who was talking bad about the family or somebody who threatened to sigh at some point, And all of a sudden they're all bringing them up to the police or trying to take matters into their own hands. I mean, this whole investigation was pretty much a mess. Right. And we'll talk about a little bit later about the sheer volume of um, accusations that were brought to the police about who the the culprit was. Right. A few things before we get to the suspects and theories. Uh, We're kind of talking about this earlier. This case definitely reminds me of the Hendrik Hythek murders, uh, which I covered way back in time, one of the first episodes that we did. Basically a similar premise where you have an unknown killer who is actually on the location for quite some time before he starts his killing spree. In both these cases, you have the entire family killed off one by one by a tool-turned-weapon that actually belonged to the homeowner. Yeah, I was the whole time I was researching for this case, the Velisca Axe murders, I was thinking about the Hinterkaifeck murders. I think it occurred around the same time period as well, if I remember correctly. It was early 1900s. 
Who knows? Maybe whoever did it came over to America or vice versa. It could be. Well, anyway, back to this case. So one of the questions that we've kind of discussed a little bit and hinted at is if Josiah Moore was the main or sole target of the assailant. Now, as we've discussed, he took a lot more damage than anyone else. His body was a lot more mutilated than anyone else. So was this a personal strike against one individual and the rest of the family was basically just collateral damage, getting rid of witnesses? Or did Josiah receive the most damage simply because he was the first target that the killer set upon and he probably had the the most rage and was hyped up at that point? Yeah, I... I'm starting to, the more I learn about this case, the more I'm starting to lean away from the latter of your two suggestions. So did he just receive the most damage because he was the first target? It really doesn't seem that way because of the fact that, you know, we believe that the murderer actually came back to Josiah's bedroom to continue to hack away at his corpse. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me... The vibe I've been getting as I've researched this case is that it really seems to be something a little bit more personal. Um, And it's almost seems like, and Josiah Moore was a pretty, like you said, he was wealthy. He was a pretty powerful guy. He had a lot of influence on the town. Right. And he was well known. So there's, there's always the possibility that we'll talk about later that somebody, he rubbed somebody the wrong way um, and, and got caught up in this. Yeah, I mean that that would make sense. I don't I don't exactly know why this killer as you said would, you know, kill Josiah, everybody else and then decide to go back to Josiah and inflict even more damage, especially when there were still two more people alive in the house that he could have vented his violence on if that was his sole purpose. So, there definitely is an angle where this is a personal attack against Josiah. But at the same time, you know, if if it was really personal and, and somebody wanted to really break Josiah, then, as you mentioned earlier, he likely would have killed the family first. Right. And had Josiah, you know, kind of think about that fact. Yeah. Um, and that would have been the ultimate way to inflict pain on somebody, not to kill them while they're sleeping. Exactly. So it's, it's possible that they just wanted them gone. Right. All right. Now, one of the big questions that I've thought of, I know a lot of other people who I've talked about who's looking at this case, is how did this killer manage to murder everyone inside without waking anybody up, except for the very last victim? You'd figure, especially when you have a couple beds where there was two people laying in the same same bed, you'd think that the force of swinging an axe several times, I assume he's probably grunting, I'm guessing that when a human skull is cracked open by an axe, it makes a little bit of noise. I just don't see how he was able to do all this without anybody waking up. Right, and that, like you said, you know, he was most likely making noise, and it is actually discovered later on that there were gouge marks in the ceiling. Um, in the rooms, and it's pr- presumed that these gouge marks were from the upswing of the axe as he brought it, brought the weapon down on the victim's faces. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how does he strike the ceiling of a house and not wake up other people right. in the building? 
So it's it's a little bit suspicious. I don't know if you have any theories. Uh, I have a theory later on. It's basically just that he's done this before, whoever it was. Um, again, I'll go into more detail later, but I kind of shy away from the personal attack, and I prefer that this is a serial offender, so he knows what he's doing. He has the confidence of being able to do this. He knows exactly what to do. Um, perhaps he's planned this out, but... Yeah, it's like, even with that, it's hard to imagine murdering eight people in a house without anybody noticing, really. Right, and again, it, it kind of lends a little bit of credibility to the Indian theory because, like you said, you know, moccasins are you know footwear that's known for being exceptionally quiet. Um, something he would be able to move around the house in without at least making any noises with his footsteps. Again, though. I go back and forth because I figure if you're planning enough to bring moccasins, why not bring a knife with you or any weapon? You know, he got an axe from the backyard to use or in the shed to use as a weapon. He didn't bring anything along. So it's 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 just hard for me to imagine you come to a house, I'm going to murder everybody inside. Oh, crap, I need to find somebody. Oh, crap, I need to find something to actually kill these people with. So it's... I don't know, I keep on going back and forth. Right, and this might be a little bit of a stretch, definitely for that time period. doesn't seem like there'd be much purpose for this line of thinking, but it's possible that for whatever reason, if he wanted to lead investigators in a different direction, that he killed them with one method and then you know, decided to go back and hack them to pieces mm-hmm. with an axe. Good day. So who knows, that might be a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. I guess the closest thing I can think of in the modern day is uh, when Ted Bundy went on his mini rampage in the Florida State dorm. He murdered several sorority go- several sorority girls uh, on one building. He was like bashed their heads in with a, a log. Um, so he did manage to kill several people, you know, without really awakening anybody. So I guess it is possible to violently assault somebody with a blunt object and maybe it's just, you know, in the middle of the night, if you're in a deep enough sleep, you won't even hear somebody being murdered beside you. Perhaps. I mean, that's you got to be lucky, though, because I feel like most of the time I'm in such a shallow sleep when I sleep that I wake up even when the door makes a creaking noise and when the, when the dog goes out of the bedroom or anything like that. Yeah. I like to think that, but then I slept through my alarm this morning. So, you know, if I can sleep through that, maybe I can sleep through someone being hacked up beside me in bed. So <laughs> hopefully not. But, you know, there were all kinds of other strange things about this crime scene. Um, you know, apparently the killer had gone in and locked the doors from the inside. He had closed all the curtains over the windows, all except for two windows. And those windows that didn't have curtains, he covered them up with the Moore's clothing. Um, and another strange thing is that he went around and covered up all of the victims' faces um, with clothing after the murder had occurred. So just some sort of strange clues that were given that it's kind of hard to make much sense of. All right, it's almost like ritualistic or right, something like that. Right, right. All right, so let's go ahead and just get into some suspects and theories in this case. Now, due to the brutality of this case and all the attention that was caused by having an entire family slaughtered and also that the Moors were well off and pretty likable, the police quickly try to round up as many suspects as possible. Another thing that's interesting about this case is that despite the fact that no one ever was officially convicted as the murderer, there's certainly no shortage of suspects. 
And around the time of the murders, you could read about no less than four suspects in any newspaper at, at any given time. And part of this kind of speaks to the notoriety that the case received at the time in conjunction with the brutality of the crimes. Unfortunately, all of these cases would eventually turn up as dead ends. That's something we've come across in a number of our episodes where you have these crimes that are nationwide attention. You have people all over saying they either know who did it. You get some people who try to claim responsibility just to get some attention for themselves. So this is kind of one of those similar cases. Now, one of the potential suspects initially investigated by the police was a man named Sam Moyer. Sam was the sibling to Sarah Moore, which would make him Josiah's brother-in-law. It was mentioned to the police that these two were, at times, very confrontational, and Sam definitely had some ill will towards his brother-in-law. On several occasions, it was overheard by others that Sam had threatened to kill Josiah over some of their disagreements. However, this tip was written off pretty quickly by the police. The motive for harming Josiah may have been there, but it was really not believed that he would harm his sister, let alone his nieces and nephews. And eventually it turned out that Sam actually had an alibi the night of the murders, so that basically just ruled him out completely as a viable suspect. True, but, you know, there are varying degrees of alibis, and the alibis can be disproven just as easily as the evidence itself. All right. And, you know, it, it, it does somewhat fit loosely with the focus of the crime being on Josiah. So how he used the sharp end of the axe to, you know, kill Josiah and, and stuff like that. All right. So this would make sense if, in fact, it was a personal attack. Um, which is still up in the air, whether it is personal or just random. Now, now I'm speaking of the random side, another man who could have been linked to this case is a person known as Henry Lee Moore, not actually related to the recently deceased Moore family. Henry Lee was a serial killer who operated between 1911 and 1912, so the year that the Velisca Axe murders took place. His confirmed victims include men, women, and some children. Before his arrest, Henry Lee would go on a bloody rampage, which spanned a year and a half, and he would commit murders in five different states and rack up a body count of more than 20 homicides. As for who he was, Henry was a low-life drifter, and he had a reputation of sudden outburst and violent rages. He would ultimately be prosecuted in December of 1912 for murdering his mother and grandmother in Columbia, Missouri. Before his arrest, Henry's rampage actually went unsolved until the Velisca incident occurred. So it was a federal officer, M.W. McClary, who was assigned to the Velisca case. And during his investigation, he would discover that the crime in Iowa was not really unique, but rather fit into a recent disturbing pattern. Nine months earlier in September 1911, six victims had been slain in Colorado Springs. The victims there include a man and his wife and their child, along with another woman and her two children. In the following month, a triple murder resulted in the death of the entire Deucin family in Monmouth, Illinois. Soon after that, in Ellsworth, Kansas, the Showman family, five in total, were also slaughtered in their home. On June 5th in 1912, just five days before, before the murders would take place in Villisca, another murdered couple 
was found in Paola, Kansas. Besides the brutality of the assaults and the fact that this killer was more than willing to wipe out entire families, possibly the most important link that the federal agent discovered was that axes had been used in every slaying. After Henry's arrest and conviction of the murder of his mother and grandmother, McClary would hear from his father about Henry, as his father worked as a warden at a federal penitentiary. After comparing notes on each of the murders, along with conducting several of his own interviews with Henry, it led Agent McClary to put forth his own theory that this man was responsible for 23 murders in the Midwest over the past year. The investigation was ultimately stalled, however, due to the confession of another suspect, which we will cover a little bit later, and Henry would never be connected to the slings in Villisca. Henry Lee Moore would ultimately end up serving 36 years of a life sentence before being paroled by the governor of Missouri on December 2, 1949. His sentence would be commuted in 1956, and the then 82-year-old Henry would go to St. Louis, where there'd be no more records of him or his eventual death, so nothing really, so we don't really know where his story ends. So despite McClary's confidence that this Henry Lee Moore was the man behind the crime, no proof was ever found to ultimately connect him to the murders, and the Velisca case would remain unsolved. So out of all the historians and experts that have studied this case, they pretty much fall into three major categories in terms of who they believe to be the most likely culprit. So Sean, you already mentioned one of them, that the murder was some sort of hobo or, or drifter. And as you mentioned, Josiah's brother-in-law was pretty firmly ruled out. However, there are two other prominent figures to consider. So one by the name of Frank Jones, Frank F. Jones. And this individual was an Iowa state senator and a very prominent figure in the community at this time. And he's thought to be one of the most likely culprits to be behind the, the slayings. And Josiah Moore actually worked for Jones for several years until opening his own company in 1908. And according to witnesses at the time, Jones did not take well to Josiah's leaving the company as he managed to take a significant portion of his clientele with him when he left. As an additional motive, there were rumors floating around that Josiah Moore had an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, Donna. Now, despite being openly accused of hiring a hitman to kill Josiah, Jones was never arrested and continued to deny having any involvement with the case. Now, of course, a man of Jones' stature would not have actually committed the crimes himself. And one of the main investigators suggested to Jones's face that he had hired a man by the name of William Blackie Mansfield. And the investigator by the name of James Wilkerson considered Mansfield to be the prime suspect and having a direct connection to Senator Jones. Now, as Wilkerson's theory goes, Mansfield, who was known by several other names at the time, was a cocaine addict and also a serial killer. And the actual connection to the Velisca axe murders would not come until years later when multiple other axe murders were committed in exactly the same manner which indicated to Wilkerson that they must have been committed by exactly the same person. So some of these murders um, Sean already mentioned. So the victims of the latter murders were none other than Mansfield's own wife 
infant child and in-laws in his hometown of Bluefield, Illinois. Now, to further support this theory, there is another identical murder that was identified as having occurred just four days prior to the Velisca Axe murders in Paola, Kansas. And, Sean, I believe that was the case that you were just discussing. Right, yeah, so it was like two guys, two suspects basically being pinned for possibly the same crimes. Right, and so there was, if you just do a quick quick map quest, um, there's actually a distance of 183 miles between Paola, Kansas and Villisca, Iowa. So that's easily, easily traveled in four days. The similarities that Wilkerson offers are that the victims were A, all hacked or bludgeoned to death, the mirrors in the homes were covered, and in each case the culprit avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves. So Mansfield knew that his fingerprints were on file from previous crimes he committed and from time that he had spent in Leavenworth. Right, so I think that's something we kind of talked about earlier is that there might not have been any fingerprints because either the person knew that fingerprints were a thing and didn't want to leave his behind or knew his fingerprints were actually in the system, so he would almost immediately be caught. So unfortunately, Wilkerson was able to bring this case to trial. However, payroll records would provide Mansfield with an alibi, suggesting he was actually in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. So Mansfield was released. He actually filed a lawsuit and won over $2,000. However, as we discussed earlier, how easily it is to you know kind of counter counteract these alibis, eyewitnesses reported seeing Mansfield boarding a train in the area the day after the murders occurred in Villisca. However, unfortunately, this is difficult to substantiate. It is one thing to note, though, if he was a hitman that's hired by a senator, that senator is going to be able to pay off a few people to count as an alibi. I mean, if he's powerful enough to have these connections where he knows, you know, hitman he can use, he can just pay off a couple people and be like, no, he was in this town over here. Yeah, that's a really good point. Right. On the same time, though, again, there's no physical evidence linking him, and his alibi might actually be untrue. He might not have even been in Villisca, so. So the final suspect that we'll discuss tonight goes by the name of Reverend George Kelly. And this is considered by many to be the second most likely suspect. And he was a traveling preacher at the time. He settled with his wife in Macedonia, Iowa in the year 1912. So in 1917, Kelly was arrested and charged with murdering one of the victims based on this loose connection that he had actually been in attendance of the Children's Day exercises at the church on June 9th, the night that the murders occurred. He also promptly departed the very next day at an early hour in the morning. And prior to his arrest, he was caught sending obscene mail to the family of the Moors requesting information about the murders. So this was something he had done in the past, and he had also spent several months in a mental facility in Washington, D.C. Needless to say, Kelly was not the most stable individual However, there doesn't appear to be a clear motive except that he was just crazy and bloodthirsty. After his arrest, Kelly would go on to confess to being the murderer. However, this would prove not as convincing as one might expect. This confession came after several hours of interrogation and was immediately recanted upon. 
it's thought that law enforcement was psychologically bullying him into this confession. And the subsequent trial resulted in a hung jury. Shortly thereafter, he was acquitted. And to this day, Kelly's remaining years of his life are a complete mystery. So by the time several years had gone by, law enforcement had received so many potential leads on the case that it was extremely difficult to implicate anyone. This case was so well known by this time that they were even receiving confessions in the mail from people who would claim that they received money or some other sort of incentive in exchange for these horrific crimes. That's something that we heard about uh, back when we covered the Alfreda Nat case, which was, I think, around the same time that, again, this is such a huge case that people are going to want to put their names on it. So they'll even they'll even like send mail to the, the police to confess to the murders or falsely claim that they know something behind it. So, I mean, really, you have all these suspects, really no physical evidence to go on. You are in a small little town where everyone's accusing each other. This case is getting nationwide attention, so you have all these other people calling and writing in, trying to get a piece of it. At the time, I just don't see a way that they could have actually solved this case. Agreed. So it just seems like it was so congested. And, you know, just to go back to the beginning, 100 people walked through the crime scene before they were even able to conduct an investigation. So it's just like from from the very beginning, there was no hope of solving this case. Yeah. And this had happened in a major city. It's possibly, oh, it's possible that they could have figured it out. But, you know, the small cops in Villisca, they had really no chance. They didn't know how to set up an initial search. They had to call in, you know, the big dogs upstate. And by the time that happened, as you said, yeah, these people walking through the house, evidence could have been tampered with, could have been stolen, could have been left behind by other random people. So this whole thing just... Unfortunately, the way that the police conducted this just leaves zero chance that we'll actually ever know who is behind it. Now, we've gone over some of the theories and suspects, so I'll give some of my final thoughts. This is definitely one of the most brutal and disturbing murder cases that I think we've covered, not just with the amount of people killed, but you have to consider that the majority of the victims that we've talked about have actually been young children. Now, many questions remain on this mystery who the killer was, how and why did he get into the Moore home and waited to slaughter everyone inside, and how did he accomplish this without disturbing anyone from their beds before he escaped into the night. So after all the research we put in, if I had to pick one theory, I'd lean a bit towards the psychopathic and murderous vagabond or drifter, a serial killer. It would just seem to me that if it was someone in the community who had enough of a temper and ill will towards the Moors to kill every last member of the family, a lot of people would have known about it in the community, and it would have been easier for them to pin the crime on them. Again, we're talking about a community that numbered just in the hundreds at the time. So my thoughts are, I think it's likely that a serial criminal broke into the Moore home, snuck into the attic, and waited for the family to return, and for all of them to fall asleep. Then the killer started his spree. And for a crime this horrific and methodical, I would believe that this wasn't his first time for whoever was behind it. I think this is probably the work of a veteran serial killer, and whether that be Henry Lee Moore, Blackie Mansfield, or some other unknown murderer, that part's up to debate. 
But whoever this man was, he had no problems murdering man, woman, and children without really stalling or choosing to run away in between. Also, the killer was able to murder everyone silently, as we've talked about multiple times, as well as going oldest to youngest to get rid of any big potential threats first. So I don't think it was a personal attack at all against Josiah. I think it's rather just a random chance encounter with a psychopath and one who had done this multiple times beforehand and knew how to get it done. So again, we've talked about the pattern of murders in the Midwest. So someone had to be behind all those axe murders. I don't think they were all separate encounters. So I think that whoever it was could have been behind the Velisca murders as well. I actually am more partial to the theory that Josiah had upset or put off somebody in the community, whether it was Frank Jones or somebody else. I think what really happened was that individual was powerful enough to hire a hitman, a skilled hitman, as you said, but able to have enough authority or money to pay off and cover up the hitman's tracks. One thing that just occurred to me is if that theory Maybe someone was hired to kill Josiah, and that's why he received the most damage. And maybe this guy was just really messed up or had mental issues or wanted to kill. And so after he killed Josiah, he was supposed to get out, but he just snapped. And then that's when he went on a spree on the whole family. So, you know, it could have been a professional hitman that was supposed to kill Josiah in his sleep, get out of there. But whoever hired, you know, got a discount killer, and that person snapped and ended up killing the whole family instead. I guess that's one thought. We'll never know. Probably not, unfortunately. I think this is maybe one of those mystery murders that will forever go unsolved. So that wraps up this episode of the Strange Matters podcast. If you'd like to send feedback, post comments, feel free to do so at our website, strangematterspodcast.com. Or if you'd like to send feedback, questions, comments, or suggestions for new episode topics, you can send those to Podcast at gmail.com. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and our brand new Instagram page. So if you want to leave a comment or feedback through there, feel free to get in touch with us. All right, everybody. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters Podcast, take care, everybody.